Thank you, worship team, and for leading us. I thought I would uh, remind you, particularly if you're a guest with us today, that uh, our, our, our church uh, look is not a sort of neo-Gothic industrial look. We are in the midst of a big uh, expansion and remodel here, and there's uh, drapery and things, hiding things. I thought I'd give you a little glimpse into uh, what, what it's hiding there in the commons. This picture was taken on Thursday, if you put it on the big screen, uh, to give you an idea. That's right next to the bookstore in there. They have dug a big hole, and they're going to be digging about, I think, seven or eight of those around the, uh, around the room. And... So uh, they're getting down to bedrock, and I just got thinking, you know, we're supposed to think theologically about everything, and so I got thinking about what a great picture that is of what Romans has been doing for us. It's been kind of digging down and helping us to see foundations that uh, we didn't realize were even there. How many of you walked into this church building for the last 18 years and said, I'm so glad for the pylons that are holding up the columns of this building, praise God for the concrete buried in the, in the dirt. Nobody thought that. But boy, it'd be a, it'd be a bad thing if that uh, foundation started moving or shifting or not working, wouldn't it? That'd be a very bad thing. And what Romans has been showing us is that the foundation of our faith is grounded in the eternal character of God. There is a bedrock that the gospel rests upon and that that concrete foundation is the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, his, his work and his salvation is massive beyond all understanding. It is able to support any who come to him by faith. And that, uh, you know, the promises of God that are unchanging and unwavering that allow our faith to stand, our pillar to stand in the storms of life, etc., etc. I can make a, I could do a whole sermon based on that picture. I'm not gonna, but I just thought I would say that I could. And for you to kind of get a sense of what's going on. So thank you for your flexibility as we continue to deal with the uh, evolving conditions here. Uh, I think it's fun. Well, on we go to Romans chapter 6. And in verses 5 through 11, we saw last week how God's grace fundamentally changes our relationship to sin. We saw last week that when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, we died with him to our sin, in union with Christ. The unbeliever is the opposite, okay? The unbeliever is alive to sin and dead to God. The Christian, though, is dead to sin and alive to God. And that change fundamentally changes our whole relationship, our whole moral relationship to sin and obedience to sanctification, we come to understand that God is conforming us to the likeness of his son. And we live out a victory that Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. And we're going to get into how to do that today. But we find that as a Christian now, I have a new heart. I have a whole new set of desires. I have a whole new set of passions and affections in my life. There are things that I'm living for now and directions that I'm living that I never was living prior to that because I was... I was alive to sin and dead to God. But in Christ now, I am dead to sin and alive to God. And what a difference that makes. This new nature does not mean that I don't struggle with sin daily. In fact, now the struggle actually begins. Prior, prior to becoming a Christian, there was no struggle. 
There was no tug of war. I just kept, sin just kept winning, right? Just one side of the tug, always winning. But now as a Christian, I have a new nature, and now the battle begins. Sin is no longer, as a Christian, the Darth Lord of our lives. That's why he says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, so important to realize that when Jesus died for our sins, we were with him and we died to sin. We died to sin as the master of our lives. We died to sin as the, as the central uh, point of our life. We died to that whole way of thinking and that whole way of living. But now the war begins. And what Paul wants us to do here is he wants us to live out this new identity that we have in Christ. To be alive to God and dead to sin. But how do we do that? Maybe you last, left last week going, well, that's a really interesting point, Pastor Steve. Thank you very much. But how do I do that? Like, I don't even know how to do that. Well, Paul now gets practical in how to do that. And I want to read our text today. It's just three verses. Romans 6, verses 12, 13, and 14. Here's what it says. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but under grace. May God bless his word to us today. Please note that for five chapters, Paul has been basically teaching. He's been teaching about uh, Gentiles and Jews and how all of them are under the wrath of God, that all fall short of the glory of God. He's been teaching about uh, the wrath of God and the punishment of God. He's been teaching about salvation by God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's been teaching about justification now as me being declared righteous in the eyes of God and God promising to treat me this way forever. He's been teaching and teaching but he hasn't really been maybe what we call preaching, okay? Somebody asked me once, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? I said volume. <laughs> but really the difference, it's the difference between the indicative and the imperative. It's the difference between uh, this is what is true. Now this is how it applies to your life. This is how you live it out. This is what you must do. And now Paul makes that transition into the doings. How do I live this out? What does this mean in terms of my obedience, in terms of my dying to sin and my response of love and service to God? Now, my summary of what he is saying here today and all the way through chapter 7, so I'll probably be saying this again, uh, I want to quote from a famous theologian, and this is one of his most famous things that he ever said, ever wrote, I think. Uh, his name was John Owen, okay, and I have a picture of, of John Owen here. And it just goes to show you that God uses men with big noses. <laughs> and any family resemblance uh, is coincidental because my heritage is from the other side of the English Channel, uh, Holland. This guy's from England. 
And John Owen was, he was kind of like a renaissance man. I mean, he, he was obviously an incredible theologian, but he also was very involved in like the social life of the day. He was friends with Oliver Cromwell, if you know the story of England, and him as the prime minister, and sort of this battle between uh, the Protestants and the you know, Puritans are in that, and the Catholics, and all of that sort of shaped even the United States coming into existence, if you know that history of the story. He's in the mix of all that. Uh, he had, I forget how many kids, like 15 kids, only 14 survived, something like that. And so just a man who lived a life of incredible highs and lows and drama. And in the midst of all of that, one of the greatest theologians the church has ever known, especially when it comes to the subject of sin and temptation and how Christians deal with it. His writings on this, classics, people read uh, to this day. And there's one little phrase that he is kind of famous for, and in the last like 15 years, if you know sort of American evangelicalism, there's been sort of this like reformed hipster movement, uh, the, the young, restless, and reformed group that sort of discovered again reformed theology, and now you can buy t-shirts and mugs, and you know, there's probably people with tattoos that say this kind of thing. Uh, and this is what, you, you can buy a coffee mug that has this little phrase on it, here it is. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. John Owen. Now, you might be confused by that statement because you're like, hey, Pastor Steve, haven't you been saying over and over again that when, when Jesus died for our sin, we died to our sin? Yes, that's what we've been saying. Well, then why do I have to worry about killing sin if I already died to sin? I mean, you say my whole relationship with sin has changed. I'm now declared righteous in the eyes of God. I have union with Christ. Christ defeated sin. When he defeated sin, I defeated sin with him. Justification, no more penalty for sin. So why do I gotta be killing sin or sin will be killing me? What are you talking about? And the answer to that is simply this. We died to sin. Sin didn't die to us. We died to sin, but sin didn't die to us. What Christ's victory over sin was, was the removal of sin's ultimate claim against us. His ultimate mastery over us. Sin is no longer the Darth Lord of our lives. We have a new master, we have a new king, his name is Jesus. But we have to realize that in spite of that, sin continues to be an active force in our lives. I can say this to every single one of you here today, whether you're a Christian or not. We all have a, an enemy within us. We all have not a passive, not a thing if I give into it, but an active enemy trying to destroy God's work in our lives, trying to destroy the work of grace in our lives. And ultimately, the aim of sin is to be rethroned in our hearts. It's all new in our lives until we came to Christ. It was, it was on the throne of our life. And sin is royalty. Sin, you know, it's, 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 if you read the stories of the royals, you know they're all aspiring to the throne. Prince Charles can't wait for his mom to die. Why? Oh, i got to get on that throne. I don't know if that's true, but you get the sense of it maybe. Sin wants to be on the throne of our lives. And it will not stop until it has the mastery over us. You have an enemy within you every day that is actively pursuing 
your heart. And sin is still at war with us, okay? We died to sin, but sin did not die to us. Here's where I think, uh, to use a warfare analogy, I mean, if you know I love, I'm a war buff, especially World War II. If you know some things about World War II, victory was declared, MacArthur signed it, USS Missouri in the, in the, in the port there in Tokyo. Victory was declared. But if you know more of the story, you know that like for years after that, they kept finding these Japanese soldiers on these remote islands in the Pacific who hadn't heard that the war was over. Like they're still there at their ports with their machine guns and, you know, they're ready to shoot anybody that's not a Japanese that comes on shore. They're still waging their war even though the victory had already been declared. I think the Iraqi war is another analogy of this. This is more recent. We, many of us live this. You know that victory was declared. But what happened after victory was declared? Did did, did the enemy just say, oh, I guess it's all over now? No. They continued an insurgency against. They continued to fight against. They continued to sort of guerrilla warfare against. And we have people in our church, some of them probably sitting right here, that after the victory was declared, you were shot at and you were bombed. Why? Because the enemy was still fighting its war. And sin is like that, friends. Sin is continuing to fight the war. We are dead to sin in Christ, but sin is not dead to us. So think ISIS fighter. Think Taliban. And to understand sin is at war. You're at war. You have a war going on. And one of my aims today, by the way, is for you to realize that you're at war. So many Christians, I think, sleepy about this. Don't realize that there is a threat within our hearts every day that we must fight against. So look at verse 12. Here's what he says. Here's the imperative. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Notice mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So you see a transition. The word therefore All the things he's been teaching, all the things he's been saying, now, therefore, this is what you must do. Make it your priority to not let sin take over your life again. Prior to faith in Christ, sin dominates our life. We don't have any new nature in Christ. All we have is our sin nature. Now, we do good things. We help old ladies across the street, et cetera, et cetera. But the the Lord on the throne of our hearts is sin and our sin nature. Paul's focus in this text is on our bodies. Notice he says in verse 12, mortal body. He says in verse 13, our members, which is code for body parts. (laughs) Now this includes more than our bodies, but certainly it includes our bodies. And why would Paul begin with our physical existence? And it's just the simple reality that None of us have ever committed a sin outside of our bodies. Our bodies are the space, they are the framework within which all of the things that we do in disobedience to God, it all happens in our bodies. I mean, I, is there anyone here who's ever lived a day outside of your body? Actually, don't answer that, because I, I know some of your stories. Uh, But any sin that we've ever committed, we have committed in the context of our physical existence. And our enemy 
knows this and realizes this and realizes that so many of our weaknesses are associated with our human physical existence. Like if you were to wage war with us, where would you go? It's so easy to look at a human being and realize there are weaknesses in our defenses that are often related to our physical existence. And so the enemy takes those weaknesses and exploits them for sinful purposes and ends. How? Okay, let me give you some examples of how the enemy does this. Number one, sin turns a need into an, into an obsession. Sin turns a need into an obsession. So we all have certain needs, don't we? What do we need? We need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need relationships. There are certain things that we, we need health. We, we, we need those things. And those are all legitimate needs. These are things that God just made us this way. These are the th same things that Jesus needed in his physical existence incarnate on this earth. There's nothing wrong with these needs. And so we therefore have natural desires that relate to these needs. But sin looks at these things and sees a weakness to exploit. So if, for example, the very first sin that was ever committed, Satan comes to Eve and says, what? Eat of, eat of this tree. Now, was it wrong for her to eat? No. Was it wrong to eat the fruit of a tree? No. She might have been hungry. She might have, who knows, but... There is a legitimate need that sin, by the temptation of Satan, turned into an obsession, which is when I want this thing more than I want God or God's will or purpose in my life. So you think about Jesus, for example. 40 days in the desert. Did Satan come to Jesus when it was you know, day one in the desert? No, he comes on day 40 in the desert. He hasn't eaten, he hasn't drank anything. I, I say he's hungry at that point, legitimately hungry. Okay? Many of you right now, you had breakfast and you're like dying for lunch already. He went 40 days without any food. You talk about hungry. And Satan then comes in to exploit that legitimate need and to say, why don't you turn this rock into bread? And Jesus realized, no, that would be outside of God's will to elevate the bread of this rock above God's will for me to obey. But you see how it works. This is... This is how it often happens within us. And we, we sort of have a guise because we say, hey, I need this thing. And I can justify my dependency on this thing because it's a legitimate, a legitimate need. And we don't realize that sin is waging a very sort of guerrilla warfare in our hearts, turning a need into an obsession. Now, if, if sin can't do it that way, if it's not a need, a bodily need, oftentimes sin goes for the bodily pleasure. Sin corrupts a good bodily pleasure. And we need to affirm right now that God made our bodies to enjoy incredible pleasures. And we love, we love physical pleasures of any number of kinds. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all by God's plan. But sin looks at that and says, aha, they like pleasure. Maybe we can sneak something in under the guise of a pleasure. An easy example of this Sexual desire. Is sexual desire part of God's good creation? And the class said, yes, okay. I'd like to hear that with more conviction uh, here on this, uh, this day. Especially having dedicated all these children, apparently a few of you get it. 
okay? So this is a good thing. But think about all of the pain and problems in our world that somehow relate to the corrupting of God's good gift of sexual pleasure. Porn is sexual desire gone wrong. Sex out of, outside of marriage is sexual desire gone wrong. Masturbation and other forms of self-sex are sexual desire gone wrong. Obviously, sexual violence is sexual desire gone incredibly wrong. But we see in each one of these, the enemy weaponizes a good gift from God and turns it into something that allows the sin to be enthroned in our hearts, to dethrone the will of God, to dethrone God's glory, and to enthrone sin. So the sex between a husband and wife over a lifetime is a wonderful gift that the enemy loves to exploit and to corrupt. And Paul says, don't let sin reign in your bodily pleasures, your bodily needs, your bodily pleasures. Here's another reality with our bodies, that sin loves to capture us when we are weak, especially weak, and when we are especially strong. Both extremes, sin sees as an opportunity to exploit. In what way? Well, here, Satan's been doing this a long time. He knows how our bodies work. So when we're in a season of strength, so this morning, if you got up, you took your shower, you looked in the mirror, and you thought, I look good. You looked at your, your biceps, you looked at your ripped abs, and you thought to yourself, I've never looked better. And you just, you thought, I'm like at the pinnacle right now. Everything is working the way it's supposed to. I'm feeling good. I'm sort of feeling my, my strength. What happens when we're in a season of strength? Do, do we pray more when we are in a season of strength or weakness? <laughs> weakness. Do we depend on God more when we are, things are great or when things are bad when things are bad? So if you're here today and you're like, Man, I just, I'm at the top of life right now. So was David. He was so much at the top of his game. He was so much, life was good for David. That his armies went to war and they didn't even need their number one warrior. That's how good things were going in Israel. He goes, you guys go, you don't need me. Go wipe them out. I'm going to chill here. And he walked out on the porch. And there in that moment of strength, the enemy seized him with Bathsheba. So if you're here today and you're like, I'm awesome. Remember Peter said, all these other guys, they might deny you, but not me. I'm better than them. I've arrived. I won't deny you, Christ. And of course, you know he wilted like a desert flower. <laughs> so beware when time, things are great. The enemy loves to seize that moment. But he also loves it when we're weak as well. And I'm sure we have people in that season here too. You are hurting. You have pain in your life. And this can be emotional, it can be physical. And, and you're just like, you're just ready to give up. 
And Satan loves to come to us in our moments of particular weakness and to cause us to question the goodness of God and to ask a question like, hey, if this is where following Jesus goes, then what's the point? If this is how I feel all the time, there must not be anything to it. Whispers in our ear, these kinds of temptation exploits our weakness. Beware. And in each case, what is sin seeking? We've got to realize sin wants to be rethroned in our hearts. It wants to be restored as Lord and Master. Peter himself, who I mentioned, who would know this well, he compares the work of Satan in, in his letter to a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what do we know about lions and the way that they operate? You ever watch National Geographic? Okay, there they are. And what do the lions do? They, 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 they crawl and they lurk and they camouflage and they wait for that weakest member of the, you know, water buffalo. They don't go for the big, you know, the big alpha male. It's the little weak one or the sick one or the one with the bad leg. And you watch it and all of a sudden, Rah! here it comes, right? And you're like, no, not the little cute baby. And My daughter loves lion stories at bedtime. You can tell I've developed the uh, <laughs> genre. But the enemy within us is like that. And par, par, if you just leave here today and you're like, wow, I have an enemy within me, that's 95% of what I'm trying to convince you of today. Because I'm convinced the vast majority of us wake up in the morning and we just sort of go into our day. And there is not this sense of understanding that there is a danger in my life. After first service, I'm in the commons and a woman says to me, I have breast cancer. And she said, it's small, but it's an aggressive form. I said, well, you know, well, what are you doing? We're doing chemo, we're doing radiation, we're doing this, we're doing that. We gotta get after it, why? Because there's a danger in my body. And sin is a far worse danger than cancer. And for us to wake up every day and to realize the battle is on. I'm going to war today. And to go to war in the right way. You're not Gomer Pyle going to war in the morning like, you know, okay, whatever. Think like Schwarzenegger with grenades and, you know, <laughs> knives and guns and just, I'm going to war today. That has to be our approach because sin and Satan are really good at this. They took down David. They took down Peter. They have taken down so many good men and women who didn't realize that they were at war. This week, I was driving out of our neighborhood and as I was driving out, here comes this guy, strange looking guy. I kind of looked at him as I drove by, and there's not many homes in our neighborhood, and so you kind of know everybody, and I don't recognize this guy. He's sort of strange looking, and the hour of the day was a strange time for a strange man to be walking in the neighborhood. I called Jennifer, or texted her. The DeWitt house went to DEFCON 1. Why? There's a danger. Let's be on our guard. My dear friend, Christian, be on your guard. You're dead to sin, but sin's not dead to you. 
It wants to take over our lives. So what are we to do? Okay, Paul, thank you for scaring me. What are, what are we to do? And basically what he says in verse 13 is, that, is this, that death to sin must precede killing sin. Okay, death to sin must precede killing sin. Look at verse 13. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what, what does he do here? He goes back to what he's been saying for five chapters. He goes back to our identity in Christ, our justification, our union with Jesus. And he says, do not take your body now, which is part of this redemption, and present it to Lord Satan as an offering to him. He says, rather, take this body and all of its pleasures and all of its needs and present it to God. as a tool for righteousness. And if this sounds familiar to you, that means that you've read Romans uh, at least one time. Because he says almost the same thing in a very famous passage in chapter 12. If you've been a Christian long, you know this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so he says in chapter 6, present your body. In chapter 12, he adds, as a living sacrifice. And both of these are saying the same thing. It's the language of the Old Testament where they would come to the temple or the tabernacle and they would present an offering. And that offering would be laid on the altar as a sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, they were all dead sacrifices. There were no living sacrifices. But in the New Covenant, We are now the sacrifices, and our bodies, It's the imagery there is crawl up on the altar every day and say, God, here I am today, and here is my body with all of its strengths and weaknesses. I do not want to offer this to Lord Darth Satan or sin. Today is another day. I offer all that I am to you. Make me a tool of righteousness in your hand. And that's important, I think, to see because so often in the church, somehow it gets communicated that our relationship to sin and our process with sin is basically just to not do it. Don't do it. Don't sin. Thank you for coming today. Don't sin. Go home. And what happens then is is God's people leave and they, they live their lives and all they have is their own willpower. And their own sort of like, lift myself up by my bootstraps and try to please Jesus today. Or, the church adds legalistic sort of rules that, okay, this is where the God's line is, but here's over here the things that you got to do. And if you do these things, then you won't do the bad thing. And it just turns everybody into Pharisees, right? We're all trying to follow all of these rules, hoping that maybe this will help me not sin in my life. And of course, it doesn't work. Why? Because the pig always finds the mud again. And in that analogy, we're the pigs. Oink, oink. Okay, we're always going back into the mud. And so the legalists, they add rules on. The moralists add guilt. And it just makes us worse Pharisees. So for example, if I may, go back to the subject previously mentioned. Let's go back to the subject of sex. If you grew up in a kind of church like I did, and there's many things I'm thankful about for my Christian heritage, but 
On the subject of sex, it basically was a taboo subject. And what was communicated to the young people is, don't do it. Don't you dare do it. Okay. Well, then you leave the youth group meeting, scared to death, but with sin still alive in your heart. And what happens when you tell sinners not to do something? It only makes you what? Want to do it more. And it adds to the intrigue. And is it no wonder, I had a counselor, a biblical counselor that told me, so much of his counseling is counseling men who grew up in fundamentalist circles where all they heard was the don't do it. And it messed up their whole view of sexuality worse than probably if nothing was said at all. Like they go from one side all the way to the other and they're just all, they're all messed up. Why? Because we can't handle sin when the only solution to sin is don't do it. So the moralist and the, and, the, and the legalist, they approach it this way. Kill sin and then die to sin. If you kill sin and kill sin and kill sin and kill sin and you do it long enough, eventually you're going to arrive at a place where you don't struggle with sin anymore. You're almost perfect. Go and do that now. And God's people wanting to be good God's people, they go out and they try to do it. And what happens? Failure over and over and over again. Why? Because we cannot overcome sin by merely trying not to do it. And that's not the prescription of the Bible, by the way. Don't do it. The prescription that Paul is giving in Romans and in other places of the Bible is that we died to sin and now we kill sin. We don't kill sin and then die to sin. We died to, to sin and now we kill it. To kill sin, we must die to sin. We must die to it. To die to sin, we must be in union with Christ and His victory. The only way to be in union with Christ and His victory is to have faith in Him, and to put repent of your sin and put your trust in Him. And that victory was accomplished at Calvary. So we don't earn our salvation. We don't overcome sin by just trying not to do it anymore. Rather, as a Christian, sin is no longer my master. It is no longer my necessary master. It is an enemy. It is a Taliban. It's waging war against me. But I'm no longer trying to earn my salvation by not doing it anymore. I died to sin. And because I died to sin, when Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and when he was in the grave, I was there with him. And when he, was, when he stepped out of the grave in the resurrection, I stepped out of the grave with him. By my union with him, I am now living out a victory that has already been accomplished. Christ is now on the throne of my heart and I am appropriating his reign in every aspect of my life. How? By getting on that altar and offering myself again as a living sacrifice. That's how we overcome sin. John Murray, there must be a constant and increasing appreciation that though sin still remains, it does not have the mastery. If you're a Christian, sin does not have the mastery in your life. Jesus has the mastery. There is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. The regenerate in conflict with sin and the unregenerate complacent to sin. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another for us to live in sin. 
And friends, that's why people that, you know, their life stinks and they're making incredibly bad moral choices and they decide to go to church, and maybe that's you here today, or they show up at our Celebrate Recovery, or they go to AA and they say, I've got to make changes in my life, and so I'm going to do it. And they do it, and they try it, and they work at it, but they don't gain the ultimate sort of victory over that. Why? Because sin is still the master on the throne of their hearts. And the only way that it is usurped is the revolution known as Christianity and Christ being now Lord enthroned in my heart and my life. And with Christ on the throne of my heart, now I am dead to sin, a victory he accomplished, and now I set about to killing sin in my life. It's not a moralistic approach. It's not a pharisaical approach. That is Christianity. I don't care what you've been told. Simple illustration. If you're from this area, you're probably familiar with the Chicago Cubs. That is either a positive or a negative for you. Our church is fairly split on that from what I can tell. It's the only division we allow in our congregation. (laughs) If you know the Cubs, you know that they have a tradition that when the Cubs win, you fly the W. And the W stands for what, by the way, everybody? Okay, win, or in the sense, one, okay? They don't fly it until the game is done. Uh, It's when it's already been done and the victory is accomplished, they fly the W. Now, if you were driving through a neighborhood, and, and this is annoying if you're a Sox fan because you see all these Ws flying and you're like, you know, I wanted to see the L, not the W, Uh, But if you didn't know any better, you could pull up to the house and you could say, hey, I I saw the flag out front. I'm not familiar with that country. (laughs) What does that stand for? And the person at the door says, well, we're Cubs fans. And today, the Cubs won. We, We won today. We won today. Now, you could look at that individual, and in your heart, if you were sort of skeptical, you would probably say to yourself, we won, really? Because that person probably could not successfully throw a baseball across a plate from the pitching mound, and probably half the fans couldn't successfully run to first base. (laughs) And yet, what do they say? We won. Really? How did you win? They are identifying with the victory of another. They are waving the flag of the W over their own home in their neighborhood. They are identifying with the victory of the Cubs. And to be a Christian, as he ends in verse 14, is to live every day under the flag of grace. It is to live every day by refusing to allow sin to dominate my life. It wants to dominate my life. It wants to usurp what God's doing in my life. How do I do that? By presenting myself every day as a kind of living sacrifice before God. Not that I can maybe die to sin. No, I already died to sin when Jesus gave the victory. The, what, the W's waving in my heart. I'm identifying with the victory of Jesus. But now I am living out that victory by killing sin in all of its facets in my life. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so much more in Romans is gonna help us with this, but I do not want sin to dominate my life again. Why? Because I'm living under grace. I'm living out salvation, and yes, this is complicated. And frankly, I don't understand all of it, and there's parts of Romans 7 that I gotta, I'm not sure on yet. But the starting point I know, and that is identity with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which gained the victory in my life. I live in light of that victory every day. And I fight Darth's sin. And I live under the glory of Jesus, the pure, wonderful, righteous Savior that is my Lord. And my starting point, therefore, is the cross. And I offer everything that I am, right down to my toenails, all of it, God, is yours. Do you do that in the morning? Like, what a great way to start the day. God, today, I offer myself to you from the tip of my head to the bottom of my feet. May every aspect of my being be an offering to you. That I may live out righteousness, not unrighteousness. That I might live out the lordship of Jesus, not the insurgency of sin. Please help me today. And I wonder, Christian, is this, is this where you are today? Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't even, I, I, I never gained victory over sin. Might it be that Christ isn't enthroned in your heart as Lord and Savior? You've been serving dark sin for so long, you don't even know what it's like not to. Maybe today, by repentance, you could come to faith in Christ, that he might be enthroned in his good work be done in your life. But Christian, we have an enemy. We have to go to war every day and to yield all that we are to him as an offering of righteousness. Here's how the old hymn writer got it. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne.